Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. More Canadians are buying stuff with their phones, but are there red flags? I'm also talking about a downtown Hamilton reno project, a new boss at Mohawk College, more on Bentley's Law, Tories gathering in QC, and tackling your debt. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. You pay for stuff using your phone. If you are, you are among many, many, many people who have jumped into this phenomenon, if we can call it that. Interact data shows 53% year-over-year increase in the number of Interact debit contactless payments made at a point of sale in Canada using a mobile device, either your smartphone or even a wearable device like a smartwatch. And so as we see more and more people using their debit cards via their phones or smartwatches, are there some red flags here? Are are there safety concerns when it comes to your digital wallet? Carmi Levy is a technology analyst and a journalist and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Carmi, welcome back. How are you? Great to be here, Rick. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Uh, My daughter has fully jumped into this kind of paying for things. I have not. The general generational gap is real, I am sure. Um, uh, number one, are you surprised that more and more people are going down this route? Not at all. I mean, the convenience factor is hard to ignore, and I, I'm one of them. You know, I would love to leave my wallet at home, and in fact, the, as I move more payment systems, more payment uh, accounts over onto my smartphone and by extension my smart watch uh, i can leave I, I pull the i pull the corresponding card out of my wallet and i don't have to bring it and i'm almost at the point now that everything is on my phone and i won't have to have my wallet at all i love that one less thing to carry one less thing to worry about and then also as you go through the day transacting buying things out and about uh, you're get you don't have to have those you know, a paper-based receipt it's all electronic it's much easier to track it's much easier to follow your payment history over the course of a month to manage your budget so it puts all of your all of your transaction based data in the same place and it's good for that practice the problem is of course it now makes your phone that single point of failure there's a lot of data on it all of it financial all of it attached to your accounts which of course makes it a lovely target for a cyber attacker because that's what they're going for so that convenience does come at a cost and every time we use it we should be thinking about that as well immense power but it also adds a bit of risk to our day-to-day life well that's that's one of the things that i i'm sure many 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 other canadians have thought of uh, listen i have tiktok on my phone i have social media things i have other apps on the phone if i add to my digital wallet am i exposing myself how can we avoid uh being targeted well, I mean, the first thing that you want to do is, and this this was true before we put everything on our smartphones and our wearables, and it's just as true now, especially so, is monitor your accounts. Because what often happens is, is when you have been compromised, uh, an attacker will make small transactions, uh, you know, a, a, a under a dollar, a couple of dollars that you wouldn't normally notice. It would sort of, you know, it wouldn't affect your balance significantly. Uh, and if we're not checking regularly, we're not going to see that. And we're not going to, it's just not, not going to trigger. If 
So monitor your account for what we call anomalous or weird activity. And that can go a long way toward ensuring that you become aware quickly when something is happening, when your account has been compromised. Uh, but also, you know, look at your phone and 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 think about the key word here is authentication. Um, we, we like that it's convenient. We like to tap to pay. Uh, we like to not have to give a password. But of course, that exposes us, right? Because it means that if someone gets our physical phone, they too can tap to pay and, you know, basically have a field date or expense. So look at all of your authentication methods. So every time you sign into something, ask, do I have two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication enabled? Am I making it hard to get into? Am I forcing another locked for someone to go through in order to access that payment capability. Uh, even if that second factor is your fingerprint or your facial ID, at least if they have your phone, they won't have your fingerprint. They won't have your facial ID. So it, those features are embedded in every system, every app that we've got. So go into your settings if they aren't turned on and do so. And then take a look at your networking, because when we're out and about, our phones, they have all sorts of different radios on them, cell, Wi-Fi, near-field communication, Bluetooth. And ask yourself, do I really need to have all of these things on all the time? We know that public Wi-Fi is a huge vector for attack that uh, that uh, uh, scammers will set up rogue Wi-Fi networks. Our phones will automatically hook up to them. They'll use them to sniff data off of our phones. So when you leave the house, turn Wi-Fi off. Uh, it's a lot safer. Yes, you use a little bit more data, but you're not getting hacked. And turn off near-field communication or NFC. That's the chip that's used to process these payments. So unless you're making payments all the time, you don't need it on all the time because when you're out in public, it makes it relatively easy for someone who's nearby to jump onto your phone electronically without you knowing and do things that you don't want them doing. So look at your networking, turn off things that you aren't going to be using regularly, and that can lock your device down significantly. That's a great tip. Do we need to install or download extra security devices or apps on our phones or are they well equipped to fend off most hackers out there if we follow cybersecurity best practice we can probably get by without them i mean i'm i'm, I'm sure the, you know the security software and security service vendors would claim otherwise and i don't doubt them i mean i've used them in the past uh, and they have done an excellent job the problem here is one of psychology we'll often install and this goes way back to the early days of antivirus software and i i witnessed this firsthand in my high school computer lab where someone had antivirus software on their computer and then just felt they could go do anything go anywhere behave in any way they i've got antivirus software i'm protected so it gives us a false sense of security and that in fact makes us less secure so use it if it makes you feel better but don't think that it's going to be the the one form of protection those best practices that i described before your behaviors awareness turning off networking when it isn't available turn on dual factor and multi-factor authentication and other security features that are built into the services that we use that is a much more important and effective way of staying secure digitally than just installing some service or app. Last one for you. We've got just over a minute because many people have smartphones and wearable devices that are connected to those smartphones. Do they mirror each other all the time? I.e., whatever you do to your smartphone, that wearable device is automatically going to uh, be impacted or affected. 
They typically do, because if you look at how, say, an Apple Watch or even a Garmin Watch or a Samsung is set up, it's usually it's usually connected to your smartphone. So everything you do on your smartphone generally mirrors onto your device. And so if you're setting up security on your smartphone, you should be setting it up on your smartwatch and making sure that the two interact well with each other. Don't just install a smartwatch and assume that it's going to get everything from your phone. You've got to go to those settings as well and make sure that you're secure on every single device. That's part of that transaction chain and don't be buying anything until you've done that uh you know it is incredibly convenient it's incredibly appealing but at the same time if you haven't done that security check before you leave the house on every device that's on you you're exposing yourself to unnecessary risk amazing analysis and advice as always from carmy levy carmy always appreciate the time thanks so much rick have an amazing weekend you too carmy levy technology analyst and journalist You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Downtown Hamilton. I think we can all agree that downtown Hamilton today looks a lot different than it did just a few years ago. And some of you might be thinking, I don't know if it looks better. And some of you might be thinking, you know what, It, it does look a lot better. And it will look a lot better in the future. More cranes are going up. More projects are being had. The LRT is coming. More exciting changes on the way. Including this one, a great rejuvenation project along King Street near Gore Park. The former Chester's Beers of the World building is set to reopen as a new eatery. And uh, the rest of the downtown building is going to be transformed into office space. It's pretty exciting. Patrick Birmingham is with Birmingham Studio Inc. and joins us now on GMH. Patrick, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Very well. You obviously saw some potential in this building to say, all right, let's 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 plow a bunch of cash into this thing and, and make it better. What what did you see? <laughs> well, it was very derelict uh, when, when we came. In fact, I, like a lot of people, I hadn't been to downtown Hamilton for, for many years. You know, James Street, yes, but uh, um, my, my partner um, invited me to come and, um, uh, and have a coffee at Red Church. And... When I walked into Red Church, I saw this fantastic renovation full of a whole lot of new Hamiltonians, p- people that uh, uh, maybe weren't in Hamilton when I grew up. And I saw that um, the Hamilton really could be new and vibrant. And we want to make, the d- if, if the downtown core isn't vibrant, then I don't really think the city's vibrant. So it's very important, uh, it's very strategic, let's say, to reinvest right in the core where it will have an impact and people will see it. Was this was this kind of project top of mind? Were you going into this meeting thinking, yeah, I'm going to renovate an old derelict building? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a complete uh, ambush. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I, I never really looked at, uh, at the building so much. I saw the potential of the building. I mean, Chester's was completely boarded up. And I, there, I, there were no windows on the gore. Uh, it had wooden shutters. And then um, uh, all, all the way through it and the building beside it, which we bought uh, su- subsequently, and then we've kind of married the two together. They were both in pretty uh, rough shape, and I don't think we accurately assessed how much work it was going to take to to make them new again. But they are completely new. Um, they are. It's not just a, a people say lipstick on a pig. They have new uh, new roof. They have new windows. They have new insulation, new heating, new you know wiring. Uh, everything is one hundred percent new. But they're in 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 the um, original uh, structures that they were so we have let's say the uh, uh, the character of the old buildings uh, with a brand new building inside 
As we know, whenever, and I'm sure many of our listeners have renovated their own homes or potentially even, you know, business and an older space, when you're thinking or when you're dealing with a building that's more than 100 years old, I'm sure there were some renovation challenges. Yeah, I guess you call them uh, renovation surprises. Um, uh, Quite a few uh, surprises as we got into it. Uh, I think about 80% of all the the floor joists were had to be replaced, uh, um, and um, and we had to dig down about 15 feet below the basement in order to underpin the walls and put in an elevator shaft. And um, and now now I think the the nicest surprise was that the building had a bit of an atrium, a, a central uh, shaft of light, and that became uh, a key feature. So that while the buildings looked, let's say, I don't know. Uh, ordinary on the outside when you go inside there's a very dynamic space and what we want to do is create a campus-like environment where um, a small office or a big office people can work with with synergy and we're trying to attract businesses that are part of the rebuilding of hamilton Uh, not extractive businesses but business people that understand economic nutrition about the importance of keeping money local and uh and returning to the um to local economy We've got a few more minutes with Patrick Birmingham from Birmingham Studio, Inc. here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Patrick, one of the uh, people spearheading a great rejuvenation project on King Street near Gore Park, the former Chester's Beers of the World Building, uh, totally revitalized. There's going to be a new eatery in there and uh, uh, some office space. And, and to that last point, the office space, we've heard a lot about downtown office vacancies, whether it's in Hamilton or across Canada. Is there any concern, because we have a, you know, a, a new work-from-home kind of culture, is there any concern in terms of setting up a downtown office space? Um, well, the, the, the concern is I don't think that people are, let's say, rushing back to their old, dusty uh, 1980s office. I think that um, everyone I've had in, into the building uh, would simply love to work there. So there's a... Uh, there's a desire to work in a cool office or work in an office that has a really beautiful space. Natural light is very important. And um, so while people may not be rushing back to their old office, um, a a lot of people are very interested in working in in our office space. And um, we're talking to a number of entities about about how we're going to structure that. It might be a bit like a we working space. or, uh, or it could be that uh, some tenants will take a whole floor. Uh, but we're right in the core. There's something exciting about being uh, right in the middle of Hamilton, looking out your window, um, seeing the, the public space, which is the Gore, and, um, and having, a, when we talk about an eatery, it's Piano Piano, a well-established uh, restaurant group from Toronto. Uh, they have one, office, one uh, restaurant in Oakville, and now that for many years they wanted to open in Hamilton. So I think it will be um, a hub, a hub of activity, people coming and going, and, and a great place to work. I, I would agree with that, and I hope uh, it turns out to be so. Patrick, appreciate your time. Good luck with this. Thanks so much, Rick. Patrick Birmingham is with Birmingham Studio, Inc., and uh, one of the major players on this rejuvenation of the former Chester's Beers of the World building, that iconic building that has been, well, empty and derelict for, for many, many years, now well, with a new breath of life within it. And, you know, one of many reno projects and, and new towers that are going down or going up in the core. You, you look downtown and there are plenty of cranes building things, whether it's condos, office space, 
uh, new eateries like we're going to see in this building. It's very exciting. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're going to talk about Mohawk College because in a year from now, there's going to be a new boss at Mohawk College. Yeah, the president of Mohawk College, Ron McCurley, is stepping down from the role, effective July of 2024. And joining us now to talk about it is Mr. McCurley himself. Ron, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm okay. Why Why step down and why make this announcement now? Uh, well, uh, everybody's got to transition out at some point of their jobs, but... Um, uh, I'd like to give lots of notice to the board uh, to make sure that they have sufficient time to go out and recruit uh, a new president. And so that's uh, in their hands now, and that's the process they'll go through. And, and it gives uh, me lots of time to focus on the work that still has to be done. Well, what, what still has to be done at Mohawk? Well, there's a lot of things we're still focused on. Uh, probably at the top of the list right now is additional student housing. Uh, that's a big issue, not only for us, but right across the entire system. Um, so we will we'll be doing that. I'd also like to leave my predecessor with more buildable land uh, adjacent to any of our five campuses, if we can do that. So um, that's an area of focus as well. And then we're right in the middle of our strategic plan. So delivering the rest of the uh, priorities in there, or as many of them as we can in the coming year is uh, the top of my list as well. want to hop on the student housing uh, reality. W- what is the reality for students who are attending Mohawk and are looking for a place to live near campus? Well, we still, we've still just filled up the residence, so that uh, uh, was as recently as a couple of days ago. Um, we're looking for, uh, and we're about to do a deal, we think, to provide more uh, housing available starting at the end of uh, December or towards the beginning of the new term in January. And and at some point, uh, frankly, we, we do have to build more, and we know that, Rick, and that uh, work is uh, underway. We have a, a whole team of people that work with students to help them find uh, suitable accommodation. They've been very successful, but it's tight, and uh, it it is uh, tight across all of our campuses. So we're obviously looking uh, to create more capacity. On that front, with rental rates being tight, with the cost of rental housing in this community high, um, do you get the sense or, or do you know if some students are saying, you know what, I, I just can't make the trek to Hamilton to go to Mohawk. I'll have to stay home and go to school there. Uh, and some of the programs allow for that. Uh, so you can, uh, some of them allow for online study. And uh, we've that's been something since COVID that we've been able to uh, provide to students. We also have a campus in Mississauga now. So for some students, that's much more uh, convenient location. And we have about 3,000 students that are studying uh, in, in and out of the Mississauga campus. So we're trying to provide as many options as possible, Rick, to make it as easy for students as possible. We also know that we are uh, have to be part of the solution in terms of solving the housing uh, shortage. And so how do you do that? How is Mohawk going to be a partner in, in making that a reality? Well, for example, we've turned some of our... Uh, rooms into uh into doubles so uh, in the uh, in the actual residence itself so we've added some more beds in there uh, we can uh, convert existing uh industrial space in in different spots uh, that's not being used for commercial so uh, mississauga is a good example of that in that near that campus where some of that will be converted into residences and, and we can build and we can continue to work with the community to uh, make sure that there's good, safe, affordable housing available for students. 
but it is a problem everywhere, and uh, it's going to require a lot of uh, different solutions, including some from government. Agreed. Ron McCurley is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ron is the president of Mohawk College on his uh, victory lap, I guess. He's going to be retiring uh, from that role in uh, July of 2024. What are some of the highlights of your tenure at Mohawk? Well, there's a lot of things I'm proud of. Um, Mohawk is a leader in uh, uh, college access uh, through our city school program, so free college and work prep uh, courses in Amadeville. Very proud of that. Uh, we uh, put together the coalition across Canada called the Canadian Colleges for Resilient Recovery, where we're training 15,000 people in green skills and the green economy, and we're working with uh, national po- uh, partners across the country. Very proud of that. I'm very proud of our Center for Integrated and Advanced Medical Imaging that we've uh, just launched in conjunction with McMaster University. That'll allow us to focus on training MRI techs and provide clinical support for uh, to clean up some of the imaging backlog and also provide research space. Uh, during my tenure, we built new campuses, one at the airport and the other one in Mississauga. We've created a great culture of innovation within the college and, and uh, focused on you know, taking some risks, doing the right things for students. We have a strong leadership team. We have great boards. Uh, now, I'm very pleased of all those, uh, proud of all those things. I think we've um, the, the the team has worked incredibly hard to do the right things and to put students first, and that's what we're all about. And we really do believe that, you know, the students are at the heart of all we do at Mohawk, and, and we actually live that, not just, uh, you know, talk about it. So... So those are some of the things that I would put up there as sort of the top of the list. All great achievements for sure. we got about a minute left. Uh, July 2024, it'll it'll nearly be 10 years when you first took the the job. That was August 5th, 2014. Is there a part of the job you're not going to miss? Uh, Maybe the early mornings uh, sometimes. (laughs) I hear you there, Ron. (laughs) Lots of meetings that start early and go late. Um, you know, these are these are demanding jobs. I'm certainly not going to miss managing through a pandemic again. Uh, that was uh, very challenging. And, uh, you know, these jobs have a lot of meetings in the evenings as well. So uh, spending more time with my wife and family will be uh, a great benefit to uh, retirement as well. Sounds like a good plan. Ron, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Ron McCurley, president, outgoing president of Mohawk College. He's got about a year left in his tenure. He'll hang up the, well, whatever a, a college president would hang up in July of 2024. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We learned about uh, this new law in the United States, 24 U.S. states, in fact, that would force drunk drivers to pay child support if they killed a parent or guardian in a crash. It's pretty fascinating. Texas was the latest state to adopt what is known as Bentley's Law. And I asked Toronto criminal lawyer Ari Goldkind what he thought about this. This is something that I think Texas is saying, look, this isn't something that's okay when you leave a wedding or bar mitzvah or a Texas Rangers game on a Saturday night. If you commit this carnage, it's not just your jail sentence that's going to be the price you pay. It's going to be to try and make the victim whole. And I think there's something very appealing about the law being used in that way. Ari also said that civil cases, much more costly, much more time-consuming than criminal cases. So that is something to consider as well. But it still begs the question, could this work here? Could this sort of law be effective in Canada. Steve Sullivan is the CEO of Mad Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Steve, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing okay. What do you think of this Bentley's law? 
You know, it's it's interesting. As you mentioned, it's been, uh, I think, 24 states now. Originally, I think it was March 22 in Tennessee. We've we've been watching it. Um, and just, you know, obviously our concern is is uh, the well-being of uh, families who are left behind. And so if this was a law that we thought would work, we would certainly be interested. I'm not sure how it would work in a Canadian context. And I'm not familiar with the American states and how their insurance works. But I, I, I mean, we're just not sure how it would translate into a Canadian context, given how each of the provinces does their insurance schemes. It, it I, I guess we have questions and we're sort of waiting to see how, how it plays out in the U.S. So are, are most of the questions based on how it would work insurance wise? Well, the, the challenge is right now is so if if parents are killed and there are children left behind, you know, insurance will will cover that. I'm not saying insurance is perfect and that mm-hmm. there aren't challenges depending on what province you're in, but insurance covers those kinds of things. And so as as we've read the legislation in the various states, I haven't seen the Texas one, but I'm assuming it's quite similar. It's sort of an either or. So if there is insurance that covers, then the offender wouldn't, you wouldn't get both, put it that way. So if the if the offender is paying, then there might not be insurance. If the insurance is paying, then there might not be an order for the offender. And from our perspective, I'm much more confident that insurance is going to pay out any cost than I would an offender who's going to go to jail, right? Because people who go to jail don't make money. Um, and when they come out of prison, and a lot of times their their job prospects aren't the best. So I'm more confident people will get money through an insurance scheme than they would through an offender who is in jail or who is just coming out of prison. My guess is Bentley's law, the the genesis of it is to, I guess, make people think twice, maybe three times about drinking and driving. From from that perspective, do you think this could be effective? I'm not sure. I mean, one of the things we know about people who are involved with, who who drive impaired is they they never think they're going to get into a crash. Um, You know, if they did, they would be as concerned about their own lives as somebody else because, you know, half or more of those who are killed in impaired driving crashes are the drivers. So I don't think people give a lot of thought to, I'm going to get into a crash, and if I do, what are the consequences? What they're worried about is getting home without seeing a police officer. But let's assume that they were thinking about this. So they wouldn't be worried about killing somebody. They wouldn't be worried about going to prison for how many years, but they would be worried about financial cost. I'm just not sure that people's minds think that way. That's not to say that people we don't want people held accountable. And if this law ends up working in the US, then I, you know, I think it's something we would want to look at. I'm just not sure it's going to work as people want it to work. But but I think that it, you know, time will tell. That's a good point. Steve Sullivan is our guest. Steve is the CEO of Mad Canada. We're talking about a new law in 24 US states that would force drunk drivers to pay child support if they killed a parent or guardian in a crash. You mentioned the you know, the the mental state of you know people who eventually do uh, drive impaired and they're not really thinking about that. They're thinking about not getting caught. Is is part of Mad and is part of Mad Canada's uh, I guess go forward plan to try to change that mindset or is that just an impossibility? Um, I think we have you know I think there has been tremendous progress both in the U.S. I mean Mad Mad started in the U.S. and and, and in Canada and in other parts of the world too that we I think raised awareness about the risks of impaired driving. I think societal attitudes have changed. Unfortunately, there are still far too many people who make that choice. It's it's a question of how you reach those. I mean, we'd, we'd rather prevent those crashes than try to figure out what we do after them to try and help make make families whole. Um, and we know that there's a, you know, the, certainly 
any category, any gender, any age is a risk for impaired driving. We know that there are certain people, young young men, 19 to 34, particular risk factor. It's how we speak to them. You know, they're the highest risk factor for a lot of risky behavior. And it's trying to figure out the messages that will connect. So we're always trying to do that. Other road safety groups try to do that. I think prevention is the key and that's that's awareness. It's a question of what is going to connect with those people. If they don't see themselves in the headlines about so-and-so has been arrested for impaired driving causing death, what does it? Maybe it's the personal stuff that you're gonna lose your license, you're not gonna have a car, you're not gonna be able to travel to the US. Maybe those are the messages. It's an ongoing thing, and there's there's sadly people who will continue to make that choice despite all of our best efforts. We've got about a minute. Uh, are impaired driving laws or, or penalties in Canada severe enough? Do we have to get a little tougher? I think the, we have really good laws in the books in terms of, of, of police powers. Um, you know, the, the things that deter people are the, the biggest one is the perception, the risk of getting caught, right? So high-profile enforcement is really, really important. And then it's the swiftness of penalties. So it's not even... Obviously, you want to have meaningful consequences for people, but sometimes it's the speed at which those consequences come. And so, you know, making sure that, you know, if you go to the criminal process, it could take a year or two years and your case could be delayed. Those are challenges. A lot of provinces are going through more administrative. So, you know, it can be your car is impounded. You have to do a remedial program. You get an interlock device. All of those things are meaningful consequences that are both, in a sense, punitive but also rehabilitative so that people learn and, and hopefully change their behavior. I think we need a combination of those things to, to be really effective. Steve Sullivan, CEO of Mad Canada. Appreciate the time this morning. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you. You too. Great chat with uh, Mr. Sullivan on this uh, Bentley's Law that is now adopted in 24 U.S. states. It'll be very intriguing to see how it goes from here on in. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHA.